today we are having a three-way despite Johnny and myself being in the same city. The UK is thoroughly unprepared for any weather that's below 10 degrees. So uh, there's currently a whole bunch of car crashes and everyone snowed in around us. Anyway, today we are joined with Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez. Maybe some of you may not like this. Apparently he's a bit of a black sheep in the industry, but I think it's important for us not to censor ourselves for you. It's not, it's not our job to baby you um, as our audience, and you may not agree with everything that he has to say, but I've been following him for a few months, and I think I used to see you on the T Nation forums as well years ago, um, unless that wasn't you. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's important to have the, the full spectrum of, of views here anyway. So Alex, welcome to the podcast. You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. How you guys doing? Very good. We've seen some of the um, tools that you've suggested to evolve yourself as a person, including deadlifts, red meat, the Bible, sprints, sunbathing, starry nights, getting punched in the mouth. Good posture, pull-ups, and a pen and paper. So I think that's uh, that kind of exemplifies the kind of stuff that you write about. Like it's pretty, you've thrown your net pretty wide. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Cool. Very. I guess to kick off of that, the, uh, my, my Twitter persona is one that I, uh, you know, I cultivated that, uh, I guess, starting around two years ago. As I, yeah, one time I was very active on Facebook. You know, like a lot of you know, fitness professionals are. And I was somewhat ostracized out of the uh, Facebook world uh, due to a variety of reasons. But starting with probably the 2016 election in the United States where I was, I very much, I, early on in December 2015, I started telling people that Trump's going to win. Um, you know, a year, over a year in advance before it happened. Um, you know, and that, you know, that went the usual gauntlet of it cost me a lot of friends, a lot of, you know, respect with people. So I I, move, I migrate over to Twitter because you know I realized at a certain point that even even though obviously the, the Facebook fitness industry there's a certain level of high school popularity essentially with yeah. being popular on Facebook that I really wasn't reaching people I wasn't reaching people and I was not maximizing my ability to where I could I was not maximizing my ability in regards to positively affecting people and you know changing lives as everyone likes to you know high mindedly say I want to change lives. Uh, and Twitter, you know, for myself, I am a writer and it was a very easy forum where I could reach people very quickly, very readily, very fast and very profoundly. So the, uh, you know, the Twitter style of obviously the, the speaking, it's, you know, it's very pithy. It's very much sort of like maxims and axioms and you get used to firing stuff off quickly and, you know, content can go viral in a day. Um, you know, so those kinds of tweets, they certainly, they make an impact on people, but you know, at the same time, uh, you know, I, at the same time I had to divorce my myself my professional reticence of this isn't really explaining myself it's just you know it's tweets but then i get messages every day now i've, I've gotten thousands of messages the past year from people that they've read one thing or they've read a tweet storm and that caused them to go off and you know change their whole life um, in some cases so i think that's an important thing to to mention about twitter is that it forces you to condense the the the, the brevity that it applies on you forces you to condense your views into something that's very um very punchy and much more polarizing than if you had a larger character limit to kind of explain the nuance in your thoughts 
Mm-hmm. No, exactly. I mean, it has to be concentrated and it has to make an impact immediately. Um, you know, like I said, I, yeah, I worked in the industry for a long time writing the lengthy articles and wanting everything to be, you know, very, very multi-perspective and fully explained. And, and you know, and that, and that appeals to professionals because we want to approach this and, you know, be multi, you know, multimodal and, you know, think that we're very informed and, you know, take these broad positions. But, you know, for the average person that we're trying to reach, they need something that's effective and fast. And, yeah, you can teach. You can teach punchy. You can. But they're looking for useful information. They're looking for application. They're not looking to read a 4,000-word article that argues over low carb versus high carb. They want to know what's going to work today right now. What's today right now? Next meal? Yeah, today what's going to work right now probably is that you eat mostly meat and have green vegetables and, like I said, sprint, deadlift, and get outside. Get have punched in the yourself. mouth. Right, there, yeah, get punched in the mouth, you know, toughen up, <laughs> learn what it means to be a man. And you, know, you do that and you'll probably be in a better place, you know, a year from now. You know, or I could present an article to you analyzing the 15 different format, 15 different variations on the deadlift of what you're going to end up doing one. So where is my time better spent? How did you know a year and a half in advance that Trump was going to win the election? I'm just I'm bursting to ask that question. No, I, I, I knew a year and a half in advance because I, at one time I was very, very, let us say, uh, liberal. I was very Democratic. I blew up. I blew up. I grew up in a very, you know, blue household. My parents were Democrats. Um, but I was also, and I have always been a student of history. And it seemed to me that the more historically, more historically educated I became in regards to understanding that behavioral trends and ideas that we don't necessarily think about in society, the ideas upon which we act out in regards to our attitudes towards morality, our, our ideas in regards to our attitudes towards free speech, our ideas in regards towards sexuality. These things evolve over very, very, very long periods of time. So I take a very long view of history. You know, human civilizations rise and fall over periods of hundreds and thousands of years. If you understand that ideas go through patternized cycles of action, reaction, and evolution, then you can make accurate predictions as to how people will behave in the future. I'm not the first person to do this. Uh, you know, this is a you know, uh, you know, very good book that covers this is uh, uh, by Oswald Spengler, you know, The Decline of the West. But he gets into this idea that civilizations go through life cycle and the ideas that a civilization is built around, they change with time. Uh, you know, generational theory, again, if, uh, you know, that's another series of books if you anyone wants to read that. But generational theory, Stra- you know, uh, Strauss and Howe, the two gentlemen that you know, came up with that, same thing. They realized that human history, especially American history, goes through these very distinct cycles of spirituality and decay and neglected generations and, and so on and so forth. And I realized with the 2016 election that we were dealing with essentially a, a you know, crisis of conscience where we were at the end, uh, at the end of a 100-year cycle. We had had this deepening division of political attitude in the United States that was increasing and increasing and increasing. And the, the media narrative that was being presented was, it was a fishbowl. It, it was not accurate. Yeah, and, I, and I know that from living in large cities and having lived in small cities, there is a very great divide between people that live in a metropolitan area and the news, the narrative they hear, and people that live in a non-metropolitan area. It can be dramatically different. And those two sides don't account for the difference necessarily, especially if you live in the metropolitan area, though. There's a tendency if you live in a blue state, a West Coast state or East Coast, that you assume that your way of thinking and being and believing is all that is. And it's not. So 
having traveled to the United States <clears throat> a fair bit and seeing different attitudes and seeing how certain ideas in regards to political attitudes had evolved, I realized that, you know, Trump was set up for a massive victory. Uh, you know, a massive just in the sense that it shocked people. It was just a yeah. systemic thing. Yeah, I've, I've heard Hegel talk about that as well. Where it, it, like... it was systemic and it was going to happen, um, and he was a master of persuasion. Uh, and the cognitive distance that it triggered obviously wasn't immense, but, you know, as I tell people now when they're shocked, you know, I, I predicted that pretty far out, and he's president now, and he's going to be president for seven years. If you want to keep disagreeing with that, then, you know, feel free. But, you know, this, the day that you begin to deny reality is the day that reality will begin by its very nature to work against you. So, and you see that now today with people that are continuously upset and outraged for a year straight now, and they will continue to be so, so long as they think how they think. You got this big, big bottle of "I told you so." Um, <laughs> Eighteen months later, so I did. Yeah, well, that was a good day. I've heard yeah, um, so Hegel talks about this as well, where we kind of we vacillate between um, extremes over time as society is calibrating, and um, the this was almost like a, a slingshot that was being pulled in the opposite direction, and just has yeah. to has to recalibrate. Fair mm -hmm. enough. So to lower the tone a little bit, Alex, would you rather? Gain ten million dollars, or thirty IQ points. Thirty IQ points. Okay. That, that's it. Yeah, yeah. These, I, with, with thirty IQ points, I could just make the ten million dollars. You know, you know, far, far, you know, to a level. I, with thirty more IQ points, I could probably make a billion dollars. Um, so I still plan to regardless. But uh, yeah, it, I, IQ positively correlates with pretty much every predictor of life success. So. Yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like to be smarter, but I imagine it would be pretty awesome. So why not that? Okay, I like that justification. So What's your money, money is just money. You can always get more of it. So on that note, then, would you rather be a worried genius or a joyful simpleton? <laughs> yeah, probably honestly a joyful simpleton. Yeah, to you know to contradict myself, but there <laughs> is something to the effect that when you have a certain gratitude for life and that you enjoy yourself, you can die satisfied. I've known many, many, many an intellectual that is fraught and distressed constantly because they overthink bloody everything. Just tortured by uh, their minds. Yeah, it's, it's the intellect that's sort of in love with itself. You know, that's why, you know, on a certain level, I, on a certain level, I, I know I'm pretty smart, but I also have utter disdain for a, you know, intellectual, intellectually minded people that describe themselves that way. Uh, just because I, I know the, you know, the, the, both the superiority and inferiority, inferiority complex that comes with it uh, is a crippling, a crippling thing for people. So, te so IQ points, but simple. Yeah. But, okay. What you the, 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 you the, the, key, the key to life, I would say, the key to life in that regard is if when you can have a very high IQ but live as if you're a simple person. That's that's yeah. living the dream. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. having you your, your mind, your heart, and your body under control. Yeah. What you support are your answers? I think similarly. Yeah, that that makes sense. That the IQ points you can then leverage for more income, but. You can't think your way out of uh, being a worried genius, so. No. What if what if the the, the high the more IQ points just makes you more intelligent and therefore more concerned? In the same ar argument, by if you're a worried genius, the more intelligent you become, the more aware of all the opportunities that you have, and the more annoyed you'll be at all the opportunities that you've missed before you gain the IQ points. <laughs> Yeah, I, it, it could. Be. I mean, I, I know people like that. It could be, but I think if you have a certain level. A lot of people, ironically, that are – this is one of the ironies of, of people that are, let's just say, not so bright. They tend to be very self-aware because you have to be because it's the only way that you survive. So, you know, those – I mean, this is going to sound – you know, this is going to – this 
let's say this, you know, people that are lower IQ, uh, they tend to have much more wisdom than people that are higher IQ because they, they have to rely upon heuristics to get by and they have to rely upon anecdote and they have to re- very much rely upon cause and effect. You know, as to, you know, they have to live in reality. People that are high, you know, high IQ, but come to a certain advantages. You can have immense intellectual power and there are, you know, privileges, let's say to it. Uh, but at the same time, they can, you can be an absolute idiot. Uh, so a good if point. you have, like if you we, have that level of intelligence, you want to have the self-awareness of someone that is not so smart. Yeah. Like <laughs> I said, I've known many, many, many very, very smart people, but their level of self-awareness of certain things, it's just, it's, it's hysterical in regards. Oh like yeah. hundred percent. It's yeah, the stereotype, yeah, isn't it? You got the it's a stereotype. Like it's like, the, it's like the genius nerd kind of stereotype. Where it, I, I, from living in Silicon Valley, I used to have clients like this. They probably had an IQ, of, you know, 130, 140, 150 programmers you know, made a lot of money. Uh, these were men that were completely crippled by women. You know, that to, to even approach a woman to to have that kind of interaction to you know to be a man with a capital M, they couldn't do it. They overthought it. And then you could have a guy that's you know grew up low income area. He's kind of hood. He's got what I call ghetto game. He can walk up to a girl, start talking to her, and he doesn't give a shit whether she likes him or not. So you know, so who's winning in that situation? You know, the really smart guy, or the guy that doesn't really care and is not smart enough to know better. You tell me. Good answer. Very complete. Is that all of we run through all the Wajirals? There, there, there is one more. Um, just before we get into this uh, this idea of ghetto game, because I, I do want to ask you about that at some point. Finally, would you rather get a million dollars every time you win a round of Russian roulette, or ten dollars every time you staple yourself with a stapler? Uh, I'll probably I'll go with the staples, honestly. Slow and predictable. Yeah, I mean, get rich slowly. I mean, we're, 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 we're talking about the gun, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you, only, I, you, you only have one chance to win or lose at that. I mean, well, okay, you have. You, you could argue you have you know five chances to uh, win at that, but you only need to lose once, never play again. So you know, the, the state, I could probably leverage that in some capacity and then make the million dollars. So I'll tell you what's interesting, Alex. We spoke to Menno Henselmans, who was trained as an economist. We mm-hmm. spoke to him last year, and we asked him a similar question, which was. You flip a coin, heads, you get a billion dollars, tails, you die instantly. Would you flip the coin? And he was like, well, of course I would flip the coin because it is a, a utility of $500 million on the expected value criterion. So uh, instant death has a utility of zero. I mean, you wouldn't know about it, so it's perfectly neutral. And you're just like, damn it, Menno, such an economist. <laughs> you know, I, I, I agree with him in, you know, in, in theory, in practice. Uh, that would be a really shitty way to die. That's what I was like. I mean, like, you know, I have immense respect for Menno, and this is not a statement on him, but I find economists to be fucking worthless. And they're usually wrong about things, but they're right about theory. So if you want to play that game where you flip the coin, well, I got the billion dollars, and like, I'm happy for you that you did. If you die flipping that coin, well, death has a, okay, death is worth zero. Sure, you died flipping a fucking coin. <laughs> and I, everyone is going to remember that you died flipping a coin for money. Yeah, it's the. What does that say about using human being? It's the impact, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. It'd be a good story to tell. Good thing to bring up, like if the conversation dries up a little bit, like oh, I had this mate once who flipped a coin for for money. <laughs> Would at least start a conversation. <laughs> I mean, you could, you could, you could do that. I mean, I, well, I don't know what kind of legacy that would leave you with. No you one's gonna become, remember what you did. You either become insanely rich or the subject of ridicule for the rest of time. Yeah, for all of history. I. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would. I, 
that way. Um, with, you know, with the economics of ridicule, I, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Better go ask some economists about you know, that. You're well versed in it. I would go stapler. Yeah. Well, with the stapler, I can t- $10 is easy. I mean, stapling yourself doesn't even hurt anyways. You know, you, no, it doesn't. You could take that and probably, I could probably leverage that into a billion dollars within like, you know, a year. Oh, God. That's not that hard. $10 <laughs> is you keep getting 10 years, 100 bucks. Okay, put that in something. You, you, how much Bitcoin could you buy with that? A lot of Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. Or Litecoin. You can, or you can buy some shit coins and altcoins. But I guarantee you there'd be a way to capitalize on that. Yeah. Just hit a bit every day. But then <laughs> you'd get used to it, wouldn't you? You just end up with tetanus. Like tetanus upon tetanus. Just clean all the staples before you put them in the staple gun. Okay, so just uh, infect them all and then <laughs> go for it so you don't get sepsis. Make sure the staples yeah. just... Like if you get shot in the head, tetanus or no tetanus, it doesn't really matter, does it? True. So no. I'd rather have tetanus shot in the head. Yeah. Glad we got those out of the way. Yeah, definitely. So, Alex... Um, I mentioned at the start, you or you you actually, um, when I messaged you to say, do you want to come on the podcast? You were like, I'm happy to come on the podcast, but just be aware you might get some backlash for this. Why is that? Oh, well, I, I got myself kind of ostracized from the, the fitness community somewhat in the past year and a half, roughly. Um, well, there's a few things. I can just run through them. Yes. Yeah, so supporting Trump was one where, you know, that. Yeah, they, they, that cost me some friends, definitely. Um, Trump won, so that, that cost me more friends. Uh, then I made a racist joke on Facebook. This is going to sound this is gonna sound bad, no matter how you cut it. You remember the gorilla Harambe? Yep. Remember Harambe? Okay. Um, so I need to... Okay. So, yeah, so Harambe's dead. God bless his soul. So I need to put some context to this. So I have a Twitter following, Okay. Um, a large percentage of my following is black. Cool. Uh, when when Harambe, when that happened, it was a running joke on Facebook, or even yeah, a running joke on Twitter. You know, the kid fell into the enclosure. Um, so a lot of my following, they're joking around that you know white people take their kids to the zoo, and this is what happens. They drop them into the enclosure. It was funny. It's a racist. You know, it's racial. It's funny. Um, when it turned out the kid was black, well, then the joke became, oh, the gorilla must have thought it was a black. You know, the, the, the gorilla must have thought the black child was like a you know baby gorilla. Um, so, uh, that, you know, sort of has got run, run, run with, I was cracking up when I read that. And, you know, again, if you're on Twitter, Twitter can be a pretty brassy place. So the joke was the niglet child fell into the enclosure and the gorilla thought it was a gorilla baby. That's why I went after it. I see. With, now. Uh, and I imagine. Well, well I shared, I, I, I made that, I made that joke myself on Facebook. And if you notice, I am not black and that, that did not go over very well at all and uh and i admit it was definitely in pretty poor fucking taste but at the time there was a sense of humor about it that i thought was funny but i have a pretty terrible sense of humor and then when i realized well i really fucked up saying that well at that point there was kind of like in a social justice mob that had gone after me for it uh and i refused to apologize since i don't apologize to crowds so that uh got me kicked off some certain circles and cost me some jobs which Fuck you all. I'm not apologizing for that still. So that happened. And then uh, the other incident that happened was that I got accused of plagiarism, which this was, I will admit, was I would consider valid. So Mike Isretel, who's a popular guy, if you've, yeah, I don't know if you heard him or not. Anyway, he's a popular guy on Facebook. Um, he made a post regarding weight loss. It was a pretty short Facebook post. It was a prescriptive 
uh, lose one to two pounds a week, do that for a few months, uh, you know, cut, strength train while you do it. That, that was really the whole Facebook post. And that was pretty much in line with what I recommend to people. You know, it was very, just the same thing, more or less. And I was like, oh, that, that's cool. And then I, I sent that out in um, an email I sent. Um, and I didn't credit to him because, you know, my being of thinking, I was like, you know, it's pretty much what I say myself. So, but I, you know, I like the way that he listed his four bullet points. Um, and then that email got shared publicly by somebody. And the wording was similar enough. And then I got accused of plagiarism. And then uh, that I had to just admit to where I'm like, you know, that did look like pretty much stealing. And I get it. I mean, that's not a, you know, it's not, perhaps not intellectual theft in the idea of it being an innovative idea. But it looked like stealing. Um, and then that was sort of the final nail in the coffin because at that point I was a racist, plagiarist, Trump supporter. So that that cost me. Let's see. I had a, I had had a position ranked for the FTS. I got let go from that. There were some other positions that I, you know, with there were some other writing jobs I had where it's basically like you're not writing for us anymore. Um, since my Facebook reputation was pretty trashed at that point, and the Facebook reputation for the fitness industry is kind of like everything, people. So at that point, I was like, you know, fuck you all. Um, obviously, now I'm operating on Twitter. And then, you know, Facebook actually deleted like three weeks ago. But, uh, yeah, that's why I mentioned to you that uh, having me on might be controversial for some people. Since there's a few, there's a few people in the industry that I know hate my fucking guts. That uh, is it. See, I, I was unaware of any of that drama. But uh, I'd well, imagine... That's awesome. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd imagine in a way it's quite liberating. So Johnny and I used to work for... Um, Sort of large financial um, companies and there is a lot of pressure on you to maintain a certain level of acceptability um, and so moving from that to being self-employed and being able to just to just be a little bit more um, authentic with your expression is really liberating mm-hmm. so I imagine once you're free from the shackles of, of Facebook and you think right well I may as well double down on this and just <laughs> Well, it, it, I mean, like you said, it, it, it was liberating. And yeah, at this point, like at this point in my life, I have I have sabotaged myself. You know, I, I have I have been to jail. I have been incarcerated. I have uh, blown up my you know fitness career more than once, both in the corporate world. And I guess you'd say my online reputation. I trashed that. Uh, and I am the happiest I've ever been. Yeah, my business is the best it's ever been. So you don't, like if anyone has anything they think they can hurt me with, by all means, um, <laughs> Go ahead, like go ahead and try. And you know, the other thing that allowed me to do too was that you know, there's a lot of subjects relative to how I live my life where I got into talking about masculinity. I got talking about, I got into talking about the role of a, uh, you know, sort of you know, let's say you know, testosterone decline and you know, social forces of society. I, I got into a lot of subjects there, you know, always outside the lane, personal training. You don't talk about that. We we stay in our lane. F- fuck all that. I talk about what I want. Uh, yeah, and, and once I was able to do that, my business, you know, my, my, you know, what I do has gone to the absolute next level. So, yeah, it, it has been very freeing. Is the is is being polarizing online or, or trying to, or not necessarily trying to offend people, but not necessarily being careful about what you say? Is that a very deliberate thing? Is that something that you have <laughs> to do, or is it is it just part of your personality? I, I've always been that way. Uh, you know, a friend of mine, Swede Burns, he has a quote that I like, you know, a mantra of sorts, but everyone is not for everyone. Uh, you know, we live in a society today where trying to make yourself well-liked by everybody is the most direct way to be an absolute liar. So if you want to, you know, I've always had a strong personality. I just have. And it was not my goal so much to offend people, but, you know, like I said, the way that things have gone today with how 
we get along with each other. If you hold strong views or just you have a way of being about you that is very firm, it's going to make somebody dislike you. So you can either accommodate yourself to people who would not like you anyway, or you can be yourself and whoever your audience is is who your audience is. I have a phenomenal audience. I, I love the audience I have. I love you know, my email list is, you know, it, it, they're excellent, excellent, excellent people. So, you know, like I said, it's not so much the point of, you know, let's offend people for the sake of offending them. But, you know, take yourself to, you know, if, if you are a polarizing person, then you, you should embrace that. And that, that I have embraced. So, I think yeah, that goes socially as well and in in most situations where, um, because Mark Manson talks about this as well, where it's like if you are the most polarizing you can be from the outset, provided mm -hmm. that you're not like running around with your pants down, then you accelerate the process of somebody who wouldn't have liked you anyway getting to that point quicker or someone who would have liked you becoming a huge fan of you rather than just being this kind of um, uncontroversial, mediocre person that's really, really well polished. Mm -hmm. no, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd be, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me, like, since I, yeah, I mean, people, people underrate social media. You know, they, they do. We, we don't, we underestimate the power of these things. But, you know, since I've been on Twitter, I've, I've made very good friends. You know, people that are real friends that I've gone and met in person, um, it, you know, and it's genuine friendships. You know, when I was in, you know, in the fitness industry trying to get along with everybody, I, I, I made a lot of friendships that I don't talk to those people anymore. You know, and when I had, you know, my, my blow-ups happen over the course of a year, uh, you know, the number of people that I dro dropped me off the radar was immense, you know, versus I had, <laughs> I took a trip last year for four days where I was not on social media at all. I came back to hundreds of messages from people that were concerned, wondering if anything had happened to me. Uh, you know, I mean, just massive, massive disparity. So, you know, I, the if you can make it your aim to, you know, cultivate authenticity around yourself, and that comes with, you know, like you said, just be as polarizing as you can be from the outside. Be, be the most of yourself that you can absolutely be from the very beginning. You will meet people that you can be real with, and you will make relationships that are that are real, concrete relationships. Yeah, if you try, if you want to do the slow, like you know, let's try to make each other like each other approach, you're both going to be deceptive. People talk quite a bit about <clears throat> the different social media platforms having a different feel to them. So, mm -hmm. like, I think certainly Facebook compared to Twitter is a lot more regulated, and things get shut down and removed. Twitter just seems right. to be whatever people want. Like, there's there's porn on there. There's there's any any content goes goes on Twitter. Do you want anything else? Do you want like YouTube, Instagram, anything? Like I, I have an Instagram account, which is it not? It's not nearly. I don't put near as much time to as Twitter. It's just you know, it's pictures. You know, Instagram is great if you're an attractive girl. You know, that's kind of whorish. You can grow a following within a month. You know, you have hundred thousand followers. You know, Twitter is fast. You know, it, anything can be said on Twitter, um, and I find it more versatile than Facebook because Facebook, <laughs> Facebook it's it's community. You kind of have to act correctly because Facebook has that feel to it because of the, the way the platform is constructed. Twitter, it's just a feed that runs nonstop. So yeah, Twitter, I think, has the most, uh, inf you know, the mo the, Twitter's variability is kind of infinite in that regard where you can cultivate a feed where, you know, like my feed, it's all about self-optimization, self-improvement, masculinity, bettering yourself, making positive change, just being a man of action, being a man of purpose, you know, uh, being someone that contributes to you in community, yeah, it's it's very very uh, it's very very aspirational. Uh, you know, my, my feed and, and the, the sphere that I fall into on Twitter is that way. You know, inversely or you know, in opposition, you could go into outrage Twitter or political Twitter or 
you know, you could go down the path of sex Twitter. So it's it's almost really anything that you want it to be. I I have found it a very powerful tool for tool for growing my business. I've been able to yeah, my email list in years gone from zero to almost ten thousand people, um, in not even a year and a half. Yeah, I've gone from no followers to twenty five thousand followers. You know, uh, you know, in terms of income, I mean, just you can do the math. Like if ten thousand person email list, that you those you know that you can sell a lot to ten thousand person email list. Um, same thing for articles publication. My website, like feeling that the growth in that traffic. That's massive. I've been able to get in-person clients, even people that want to fly out to see me, that will pay the big money. Uh, and you know, they want a three or four-hour session and assessment, all these things. Same thing for being source of you know online business, uh, you know, coaching clients. So you know, the you know the tools only as powerful as the you know, sort of the imagination of the user. You know, a lot of us, when we use social media, we tend to think of these things on a very small basis, where we're either you know indulging ourselves or you know, maybe we're going to go find a conversation to be a part of and, you know, feel like we're accepted. You know, Facebook's that way. Twitter, I realize, though, is just, it's just advertising promotion for yourself 24-7, plus it's community, plus it's authenticity, you know, plus it can be a way to network. So, yeah, there's no, uh, yeah, how should I say, there's no, there's no boundary, you know, to what you can create from it. So are you continuing to get backlash from Twitter and from your, your current presence now that you've left Facebook? No, no, no. Twitter is Twitter is awesome because if I was to you know to share what I just shared with you on Twitter, which actually I have, um, you know, something I shared with the email list, no one gives a shit. Uh, it's because it's not it's not a community in that sense where people are expecting you to behave according to the like the morals of it necessarily. You know, what would be disappointing to Twitter was that you know if I started sharing this like stupid content or if I changed my content around where. I started just cracking jokes and didn't share anything that has to do with my current content matter. You know, Twitter is, you know, in a way that you can create a persona and character on there that is actually more real to yourself where, you know, in, in real life people, if you make a mistake and you have some sense of self-awareness, people will be forgiving of it. Um, it it's not the, you know, the, it's not the correctness community that exists necessarily in Facebook, you know, in that sense. Um, you know, so, you know, so Twitter is that way where it's, Twitter is very accepting of mistakes. And that happens all the time with public figures. People will tweet stupid shit, or you know, they or you know, maybe you tweet, you know, uh, maybe you just tweet, you know, typos, or your links broken, mm. or you know, you, you share, you know, share your bullshit that way. Um, and, you know, in, in Twitter, if you cultivate, if you if you cultivate and construct yourself with some you know, sense of realness, okay, oh well, you fucked up, big deal. Yeah, I, I've said multiple times on Twitter that I've been an ex-con and I'm technically convicted felon. No one gives a shit. You know, on, on Facebook, that was a running, uh, you know, running insult to bring that up in conversation. So different medium. That is interesting. So I've noticed, so you said as well, you've gained this email list, you've gained the followership and you do the live streams as well. And you get a lot of people asking you questions. What's the most yeah. common kind of problem, the most common challenge that your clients face and that the young men um, following you face? Yeah, it, it's the search for meaning. In all honesty, I mean, it's the kind of the question that every personal trainer has when you have clients and like, why do I need to be healthy yet? But I know I need to, but what is it for? But everyone is trying to search for meaning. Everyone is trying to sense for some sense of purpose. And we want to know that if we are doing something that it is meaningful to us and that it is going to have a positive impact and we're, it is going to have some benefit beyond the hour in which it's done. So you know, I'd say the running theme with all the questions from the young men, and also I've, I've had a lot of young ladies call me too, is you know, they're asking questions and they're trying to make sense of their actions and they're trying to make sense of what they should do. Um, and whether it's fitness or health or 
masculinity or you know talking to girls or talking to men or relationships or anything else we want things to be good you know and essentially what is good usually is what has meaning to us so yeah i always consider it sort of a crisis it's a crisis and a void of meaning in that regard you know, even if it's something as simple as you know like a, a training routine you know what's a good chest workout to do i could tell you what a good chest workout is but like context you know why, why do you want that well i want to be you know why you muscular why because I think it will do something for me. What do you think it will do? You know, and when you address those things, then getting the foundational first order knowledge stuff down. You know, there's there's different stages of information knowledge. You know, first, second, third, you could argue fourth order. But that foundational knowledge, the simple stuff of exercise and routines and programming, yeah, you need to learn that. But the effects it has in the second, third order of your life, that that's really what you're going for. No, no one does deadlifts just the fucking deadlift, um, unless you know you are, I guess, professional powerlifter and you hold a world record. And, then, and in that case, you are deadlifting for a reason. Uh, but, but even then, why are you deadlifting? Well, probably because you like setting a world record and you probably have some stats and a claim from that and you think you've accomplished something. So no one does anything just for that thing. There's always a higher purpose to it. So when you're answering those questions, is it <clears throat> is it just helping people to go a level below or several levels below where they're currently thinking about these things? Yeah, yeah, there, there's a phrase. Mm-hmm. There's a catchphrase of mine I always use where you say, I'll tell people you need to back it up 10 steps. Um, you know, don't ask second order questions when you have first order knowledge. You know, you know, for a lot of people, if I, you know, it'd be something, you know, I'll, I use, I'll use that uh, example again. What, what's a good chest workout? Before I answer that, can you do push-ups? No. Mm-hmm. All right, maybe we need, like, again, let's, let's back up 10 steps. Maybe we need to learn some things. You know, same thing with diet. What's, what's a good diet? Qualify what you mean by good and what you mean when you say the word diet because I don't know. So my answer could mislead you or it could be helpful. We get exactly the same things like, oh, sh- should I be taking bitter alanine or should I have creatine pre or post workout? And you're like, are you tracking your calories? No. no. Okay. Well, no. Okay. do that first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There, there, well, there's a, like I said, there's always that first order stuff that has to be taken into account. Um, yeah. Otherwise, like, yeah, certain suggestions where you can tell people like, should I have a protein shake after I train? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. But then it's like, well, what, what has protein in it? <laughs> All right, let's let's if, again. Let's back this up. Um, do you know what protein is? You know, fat, carb. Can you can you differentiate between carbs and fat? Is rice a fat or a protein or a carb? If you tell me it's a fat, I, I'm going to be worried. But that's usually the, the situation. Um, yeah, that's why. For oftentimes, I, I end up either having to explain stuff in very simple terms, or I'm recommending people do some reading where they can, you know, learn these you know um, foundational things. Yeah, and, and then we can actually start, you know, having a conversation, you know, to, you know, getting these steps in order. It's really common to see someone with a, like, a very advanced query or worry when the basics are way off. Do you think that's mm-hmm. the fitness industry's fault, or like, is it is it the wrong information being put in front of the wrong people? Like, where, why is that such a prolific thing, in your opinion? Uh, yeah, I don't know. That it's a fitness industry's fault. I, I think it's more so you could say the you could say the the fault of society. In the sense that because we have such instantaneous access to information, uh, and you know, because the educational system, um, I would argue, trains people to think like automatons, not autonomously, <clears throat> you have a situation where people just expect things to have a very much a yes-no answer. So yeah, I, I call it, it's, uh, it it's, a, it's A and B thinking with A to Z subjects. It's either this or it's that. No, it's not. It's not that it's either this or it's that. It's that it's this dependent upon this in regards to this relative to the situation of. So you're trying to, you know, people 
and this expectation that realize not just for fitness, but almost all aspects of health. And you know, even the way we ask questions where we want to define things in very simple yes and no terms, because that's a very easy way to think. It doesn't really require much thinking. Uh, you know, it's, I, I, it's, what do you, what should I say to this girl? I, I, I don't know. What should you say to her? Well, should, should I say this line or this line? Okay. Okay. Then again, you have to back that up a whole bit. So many steps. You know, so a lot of people, it's, it's not necessarily people don't want to think for themselves, but they've been trained to think in this way. Uh, you know, it makes life difficult because you end up, you know, making these very consequential choices. You don't really understand the gravity of, and then trying to learn anything, it can be a kick in the face because you realize that you really don't know shit. And then having to confront your ignorance, which is vast and infinite. Yeah. It takes a lot of work to change yourself. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's why most people get stuck on various aspects, you know, self-help and self-improvement is a big industry. Every, all aspects of life, whether it be cars, money, finance, fitness, uh, you being married, being in relationships, sex, how you dress, work. There is a self-help, self, self-help, self-improvement industry for all of those things. Everything. Everything. There's probably a self-help industry for fucking podcasting. Like you can get online right now and look up how to do a podcast. And people get discouraged from podcasting. Because, oh, wow, I have to. Okay, I have to set up a split screen. That must take some technical know-how. Maybe my computer, maybe I need to use a microphone. And you know what? I just discourage myself because I want this to be something where I can do it in two minutes and not have to learn anything. You know, I have to learn 10 things. Shit. Yeah, exactly. Well, so I, I was going to ask you what, what do you see as the biggest mindset problem in the, among the people that, are, that ask you questions? And you've kind of answered that, which is focusing on tactics rather than strategy and not looking at the second order, the, the under the foundational stuff um mm-hmm. so speaking of which you said that there's an industry for everything including yeah. what do i say to this girl should i say this line or this line i really want to hear your thoughts alex on the pickup artist community because oh. this is something that i mean i've got um i've got friends that dived into this pretty hard and it definitely mm-hmm. worked for them and I, you know it's it seems like it's so systematic but some of them one or two of them who I know that were kind of on the verge of depression, it actually worsened things for them because it created this divide between the person that they felt like they had to be, the mask that they had to yes. put on, and who they actually are. And it, it exacerbated that distance or it highlighted that distance to them. Well, the, the, the pickup artist game, I wrote an article about this. And I'm, not, I'm not a PUA person where like I, I'm doing pickup artistry trying to get laid every single night. I've always had very good relationships with women. Um, I used to have, like, you know, I'm a tall guy, I got long hair, I, I know what I look like, you know, so that, that part is easy now, or women find me attractive, great. Um, but with pickup artistry, I find that they, you have to take sort of this meta approach to it, this broad view. For a lot of men, they they want to have relationships with women, but that initial approach and that conversation and just that comfort, it's uncomfortable for them. So pickup artistry, it, it, pickup artistry gets misconstrued by people as this idea, well, you just want to have sex with as many women as possible. Yes, some guys do want to have sex with as many women as possible. Every guy you could argue wants to have sex with as many women as possible. But for a lot of men, it's learning essentially, it's really just learning social skills and learning how to be charming and learning how to have conversation. And then they can take that and then they can have relationships with women and it, it opens up the world for them that way. Uh, but you know, then you have men though, where they have no actual ability to have a relationship with a woman, with a woman, women, <laughs> woman. They have no actual ability to have a relationship with a woman. They cannot relate to women, but they still want sex. So for them, it becomes just about sex. And then they, you know, like you said, they fall into this kind of depression. And I've seen that in pickup 
uh, you know, PA community. It's, it's just, that's not an uncommon incident where guys, they essentially learn how to talk to girls. They learn how to charm them into the bed for a night. It doesn't go beyond that, and they still have this complete void of human relationship. And then it becomes this, you know, this very much this, uh, you know, this crisis where, okay, I know how to say these things to create this event, to create these effects, but I have no personality beyond that. And you know, interestingly enough, the the progenitor, so to speak, or at least not the progenitor, but the popularizer of game, Neil Strauss, who wrote the book The Game. So who was he? He was a goofy, you know, uh, relatively middle-aged guy, short, bald, not physically attractive, wanted to be with women, obviously. Didn't know how. Didn't have the social skills. Learned game. Got the social skills. Uh, you know, he's, and he taught, and then so now he's he's you know he's hooking up. He's getting laid. He women to want to talk to him when he goes up to speak to them. You know, somewhere because he knows what to say. What ends up happening? Well, what ends up happening is him and all of his pickup archery buddies, kind of all at the same time together, they start falling to all these uh like I said these uh conscious crises. Where they know how to get girls in a bed, but they don't have a relationship. They don't know how to have a relationship. They don't know how really actually to relate to women in any way that's effective for them to have a bond. They don't know how to manage female behavior at all beyond the night that they meet them. Uh, they still are practicing. They're still falling into like these sort of like what's called like blue pill mindsets where they act really alpha when they meet the girl. They turn to a chump on day two. So they start having all these hysterical be, uh, you know, behavioral fallouts and blowups all of them together, you know, in these different ways. And he realizes, he's like, what? he realizes to himself, he's like, I have no personality beyond these, essentially these psychological tactics I employed. I know how to say these things, and I teach these guys to say these things, and we can hook up in one night. But then beyond that, we don't know actually how to actually be ourselves. There's this massive divide. And everyone is kind of like, yeah, if you, if you read the book, it's a very good book. It's not, it's, the book is not what anyone thinks it is. People, you know, because the book, it's called The Game, you know, and they assume it's about like, oh, it's just about these dudes or must be dogs all the time. It, it's really not. It's an intense psychological study in human behavior where you can see where a man can present himself as a certain way, but then completely, completely, completely have a gulf between who he acts like and who he actually is. And if you're going to be in a relationship at all, you know, that's why I talk about relationships, whether it's a fun thing or something serious, you have to be authentic with somebody and be comfortable doing that. And, you know, the pickup artistry stuff doesn't really necessarily teach you how to do that. And, like, you know, you're, for your friends that have gotten super depressed, I've met guys like that. They can go out and they can have sex every single night. They have no one that loves them. They have no ability to say I love you to somebody else. And their complete view of nihilism in the world and themselves has is, is gone is completely. Is, they, they've run into nihilism. They've run into nihilism and cynicism. And, you know, they're deeply unhappy about it. It, it, it's not. It's not a complete. It's not a complete theory. I guess you'd say in that regard. Hey, pickup artistry is a subset of development in which you should learn game as a man because you should learn how to be able to talk to women. One, so you don't get yourself in trouble and get called creepy. Uh, you know, there's that aspect, especially in today's climate, when anyone can be accused of anything. You can look at a woman wrong and she'll call, she'll call you rapist. So learn game because you learn how to talk to women, and then learn game because it teaches you about human behavior. You know, that's why you learn it. If you want to learn it just to get laid and nothing else, then you're going to adopt that persona and adopt that way of being, and that might not be to your satisfaction in a few years. Fair enough. I, I suppose I'm being a bit harsh on pickup artistry because it, even in the name, like it doesn't promise anything beyond picking someone up. Like it, it could be it called being good at a first date, and like, but beyond <laughs> that, yeah, as you said, you've got to do the fundamental work on yourself. Otherwise, this gulf, which I, I like that phrasing between what you are and what you've put yourself across as it starts mm -hmm. to become obvious yeah yeah it definitely does i mean 
you know, the, the pickup artistry stuff, like it, I, it's, it's funny because it gets it gets highly demonized by the media. I mean, it does. It does. Yeah, because we have we have double 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 standards in regards to sexual behavior, um, in regards to male behavior. But you know, we have you know we have a, a generational sentiment of women who, you know, have been you know fed the opioid dose of, of you know angry feminism. So there's this resentment that you know how dare men talk about how to have sex with women and talk to them. But at the same time, there's also the cultural sentiment now, of like the Me Too movement, where how dare a man speak to me even in a way that I slightly don't like, and you know that's going to be construed as you know sexual assault in you know in some fashion or another. Um, so it's very yeah, hysterical I, now. I, I don't think the criticism of saying it's manipulative is valid because everybody is manipulative <clears throat> in every interaction that they have with every person <clears throat> in some way. Everyone has an agenda and is trying to achieve something. So um, I think <clears throat> to say it's manipulative as a grounds on its own for a criticism is not quite. Um, not quite valid. It's about what is the consequence of it, really. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a lazy criticism. Since he, and you know, a lot of a lot of the ideas that we deal with today, like there's, there's there's this intellectual laziness to criticism in general. You know, something like you know, men wanting to talk to women to be successful with women. If I phrase it that way, that sounds very reasonable. But you know, if I call it pickup artistry, like, well, yeah, that's that that has been that now has some you know hot connotative attachment to it now. What makes it you know. A charged term, you know, at the same time, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, like, uh, you know, in society right now, like, what do you want to be? Do you want a society of men and women that don't talk to each other out of fear of the consequences? Or do you want a society where men and women are able to talk to each other and enjoy each other's company? Because you can't have it both ways. So either, you know, men can learn how to talk to women, it's called pickup artistry, or it's called a game, or it's called human behavior, if you want to call it that. You know, women can learn how to talk to men. You know, but then to imply that women need to learn how to talk to men, well, that opens you up for criticism as well. Because how dare you tell a woman how she should act? So, you know, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Do you think because it's giving, in a scenario where there's a guy who is maybe doesn't really pay any attention or care to himself, maybe doesn't isn't that interesting as a person and naturally doesn't come across as attractive, so is experiencing yeah. these problems with confidence, etc., it's almost giving him the skills to elevate to the position of someone who has worked on themselves, is confident, does exude these these things that are attractive. So there's, do you think it's the disparity that, that creates the the negative feedback for it as a community? Um, I, I, you know, it, it, it's a disparity, but it's also just in regards to, you know, you know there's, it's just, I, I find it hypocritical, but men that want to have sex with women are criticized for wanting to have sex with women. That, that just it happens, and mm-hmm. anything that's built around that desire is, is criticized. Um, you know, if you called it men that want to have good relationships with women, it would probably go over better. Yeah, I, I approach this with I approach this as an inner game approach, where if you want to be attractive to women, you have to be an attractive man. What is an attractive man? Mm-hmm. Be interesting, be compelling, be fit, have a fucking job, have a car that works, have have things to talk about. If you do those things, then the game is kind of a natural subset of that. Where okay. You have these good qualities about you. You're an attractive guy. You have a business. You guys have been doing this a long time. Okay, we're interesting people. Great. Well, let's learn how to speak of ourselves in a way that makes us charming and makes other people want to know more about us and allows us to have a conversation with other human beings and get to know each other. Awesome. What do we call that? Yeah. Uh, conversation. Being human. <laughs> <laughs> Being human. Yeah, but you'll pick up artistry. Yeah, it's catchy. It was created on the internet. It's always going to be screwed for that reason. That makes sense. So, Alex, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with ballet? 
Ballet is the only thing I've ever loved, honestly. So my my fitness career was accidental. It was not intentional. It was not something I wanted to do, which probably actually made me better at it since there, within a certain irony, when you don't care about something, it allows you to have a greater sense of mastery over it because you're not attached to the outcome. Uh, but my original career plan when I was a teenager, I started dancing when I was 15 and a half, 16. Wanted to be a ballet dancer. I saw ballet one time. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It seemed to me that you could, it was everything in the universe spinning on a single point shoe. And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to learn it. I wanted to be immersed in something that was beautiful to me that I thought revealed uh, the better parts of the world and reality. So ballet is what I fell in love with. It's what I have an obsession with this day. That didn't end up happening when I was younger because I had a series of injuries starting at 18, 19. I uh, ruptured my left hamstring tendon where, you know, where it attaches to the bone, ischial tuberosity. So I kind of tore that off. That cost me a lot of neurological innervation, obviously. And when you, you know, tear a muscle tendon like that, it doesn't work so well. It's pretty nasty. And then I broke my, yeah, then, then I broke my left foot about a year after that. Um, and that took a very, very, very long time to rehab since it caused a lot of muscular asymmetries and movement issues that I, you said, yeah, I had to fix. Yeah, I actually, I walked, I, I, was, I walked with a cane for over a year, um, which is a funny thing to think about now, but I, I had to. I'm like, I couldn't walk in the leg. So I had to rehab that. That took a very long time. Uh, in that, during that time period was when I had my career in the fitness industry, you know, 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Uh, in a certain way, as much as I enjoyed fitness, and as much as I do, like I love physicality and health, the, the career itself, uh, I've never really cared about it. It was just, it was something to do because I didn't know what else to do. And I didn't really have much direction in my life beyond that dream. Uh, and then I got back into ballet recently, the past so many months. And then I, after 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 rehab and prehab and prevention and you know training myself, I realized that I could actually still dance a bit, and I can still improve. So now I'm trying to get myself back to a, you know, professional level, which I think I'm probably about at least a year away from. But if I can set myself up to turn 30 and dance at the professional level through my 30s. Um, men can have a very long career in ballet and I have certain qualities that make me stand out. And plus I know how to keep my body together as well. So yeah, that is kind of the ballet story, but, uh, yeah, about I me mean, ballet, it's just an obsession. It, it's one of those, it's, it's something that I could wax poetic on for hours. I mean, every, every detail of it, every nuance of it, every day of history of it, it is, it is something that is, it is all consuming. I, I'm, I'm endlessly, endlessly enthralled by it. Uh, you know, the fitness and having the email list and all, all that stuff. That's that's just the mean. That's that's the means to do my art. That's what that is. Do you find that you help other people who that? Do you help people who do ballet as a result of your position with that, or is that something you keep separate to you? Uh, I, I keep it somewhat separate. Uh, I've had people, you know, ask me recently, like, if you thought of like trying to merge the two, I'm like, I, I could, you know, with a certain capacity, but you know, the, the ballet world is its own world. Uh, yeah, and within that within that world, I am who I am there, and, you know that is who I am to myself. So I don't necessarily try to merge like oh I want to you know, have ballet fitness and ballet, um, you know sort of make make a business of it that way. I it, my business is what I do now gives me the financial means to do the art purely as an art. Um, I I don't want to you know profiteer that in really in any which way. It doesn't matter. It, it, it it's irrelevant to me what I get paid from it salary, whether I get a, you know, do you want to get a company contract? I, I don't care. It, it doesn't matter to me. 
I just want to train. I want to perform, and that's it. <clears throat> I, mean, I love working with dancers as dancers. I do, I do have dancers where you know I can obviously advise people pretty in depth on you know if you have an injury or if you're trying to take care of your body a bit better or you're trying to improve your technique. Sure, but uh, as far as you know, like I said, monetizing that in some sensibility, not not really. I'm not sure how profitable the overlap between <clears throat> the the current niche that you have and and ballet is as well. Um, I think it's quite an unusual thing, especially for the the kind of persona that I imagine a lot of people would place on you um, mm-hmm. to have that. It's kind of at odds with um, with the rest of you, and yeah. I find that pretty interesting. I'm I'm a gymnast myself as well, which is also kind of people are like, oh okay, you're a gymnast, are you gay? And it's like I don't understand why like having sex with men has anything to do with doing gymnastics or ballet, which is even more kind of stereotyped for that. Well, well no, well, ballet is, um, I've always had a personality that's very oxymoronic. I'll, I'll say it that way. There's a lot of things about me that I tend to be much, very much hyper one way or hyper the other way. Um, or I'm just, I'm hyper everywhere. You could say it that way. Uh, you know, polarity and extremes, but yeah, ballet is women. Yeah. That is what ballet is. Yeah, you know, it started as you know the court dances of the French, you know, French court, Louis the Fourteenth, all that jazz. But what it turned into was that ballet is ballet is femininity in its most civilized and artistic form. You have beautiful women who represent the literal, mathematical, and transcendental and metaphysical apex of beauty. They are perfectly symmetrical. They are dancing on their toes, and every single detail down to the tips of their fingernails counts and can be something that is you know transcendently pretty. Ballet's women, you know, that's, that's, that's George Balanchine. George Balanchine, the greatest ballet choreographer of all time. You always said that. He was a man, um, obviously. All, all the great ballet choreographers are men because only a man knows how to make women look most beautiful. But he said that, that ballet is a garden, ballet is women, and that man is the gardener. So as a man ballet, yeah, there's a lot of guys that do it and they're gay and because they want to look pretty. I, I didn't care about looking pretty. I know that I can look majestic when I dance. What attracted me to it was the fact that I'm, I'm around women in a capacity where they are at their most beautiful and I can witness them and present them and create something that is infinite that way, that is eternal. And the way to do that as a man is that you must be an absolute man with a capital limb, as I like to say. So if you're going to be a man in ballet, yeah, a lot of guys are gay, but I think if you're going to do it at the highest level, you have to be hyper macho. Yeah, and the best male ballet dancers have been heterosexual men. Uh, you know, guys like you know today, you know, Barishnikov, who's great today. You know, uh, Robert uh, Robert uh, Robert Bollet. They are very, very, very masculine. And when you watch them, you know, I don't know that their sexuality is something that you think of. Oh, they're, they're you know they're poof. Uh, you know, no one thinks them that way. You know, they they are an, they are a man at his apex of masculinity as a being. So, you know, the stereotypes come with it. Yeah, I I, I don't I don't care. Yeah, I've, I've never been uh, mistaken for being gay. Yeah, and at the same time, you know, the, the criticisms that come with it, the, you know, the, you know what, what kind of man does ballet? One that knows himself. When, when anyone thinks of it relative to me doing it, I can give zero fucks. That is cool. You, you've you clearly thought this through very much as well. And what you said about the, the apex of beauty along many, many strata as well is, is really interesting. Um, you also made such a, you made a crazy recovery then. If you were going from walking with a cane for a year, having ruptured mm-hmm. your uh, hamstring tendon and um, broke your foot. And you've returned mm-hmm. back to this. And you, so uh, you said a while ago that you'd been training for hypertrophy for a while. And you yeah. kind of, you're at the point now where 
you're big enough to now switch focus and to kind of maintain that. Can you talk to us a bit yeah. about this mindset shift? Because I think a lot of people very easily, and I, I fell for this when I started competing in powerlifting, and um, you fall into this kind of mindless acquisition um, mindset where like the goal is just to keep lifting more weight and more weight. And actually you're like, I haven't actually thought why I'm doing this. And I ended up um, herniating a disc, but still trying to push through and not really mm-hmm. taking stock and being like, hang on, maybe I need to look at the bigger picture. Yeah. Well, I mean, the rehab was like, that's a story into itself. Like, I mean, I'll just say this in regards to rehab, neurogenesis is a real thing. You can, to a degree that beyond people, to a degree that beyond what people would expect, you can regrow nerves, you can recreate neurological innervation. It takes a lot of work. Uh, it, took a, it took a long time. You know, that, that said, in regards to, you know, the training and lifting, when people get into lifting, like, you know, like I was saying earlier, we like to think of things in terms of A and B. So we want to be big and strong. The way to do that is to lift the most weight. And, you know, and obviously it is axiomatic that the strongest guys are the biggest guys. That is true. If you have a lot of muscle, especially if you have a large skeleton, you're going to be strong. Uh, that said, if you want to make that your focus, you know, by all means do so. But getting really strong comes with a cost. It does. Yeah. You know, powerlifters are some of the most probably injured athletes of anyone I've ever met. And you don't like you don't meet anyone that benches heavy past the age of forty. You barely meet guys that bench heavy past the age of thirty-five. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of broken lifters in the world. Many. Um, you know, when I, the time I was working with LeFTS, I met a lot of great people. A lot of them have been world champions in powerlifting. Universally, one hundred percent of them all had injuries that precluded them from lifting heavy. You know, the old ones are older. You know, past their forties, or they could still lift heavy, but it was a risk. And they dealt with an injury, you know, every year. Still, I don't know what their quality of life will be when they're fifty. And maybe they don't give a shit. And maybe it doesn't matter. You know, maybe and maybe my argument is, you know, pussy argument. And you know, <laughs> fuck you. I, I deadlifted the squat and bench more than you did. And you don't understand. Maybe I don't. Um, but you're gonna be alive past forty-five, hopefully, and you're not gonna age too well. You know, for those of us who are not powerlifters, which is, you know, most people are not powerlifters. Are there things of merit to be learned from trying to get big and strong and progressive over- overload? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, progressive overload is a universal principle. If you want to do more than you did yesterday, push yourself beyond your prior limit. That applies to every domain of living. Uh, at a certain point, though, can you have enough muscle where you actually have enough muscle? Yeah, absolutely, you can. And relative to optimal health, relative to what I call like having a optimal relationship with gravity, how do you have an optimal relationship with gravity? You have a well-muscled skeleton... It's able to move competently across all the foundational connect chains, squatting, deadlifting. Yeah, hey, the way you actually more accurately deem it, I think you have you have hip descension, you have hip ascension, you have you know lateral and forward, you know reverse hip shift. You have the ability to project force. You have the ability to create propulsive force towards you. So you can you can push, you can pull, you can press, you can squat, you can run, you can you know maybe you can tumble and crawl a bit, you can jump. You can do these basic movement skills with competency. You have enough, mu- enough muscle to do them. And you have a skeleton where things are developed in proportion to one another. If you can maintain that muscle over the course of your life, you should be really, really healthy and you should not be inhibited from doing anything. You have freedom of movement. You know, relative to myself as a dancer, I'm a movement athlete. I have to be able to move at a very high level. Having more mass does not help that past a certain point. It doesn't. It can help it to a point, but past a certain point, it becomes inhibition because it does slow you down, because it does make you turn slower, because it does have an oxygen debt to it. 
you know, so you have to take all those things into account. It's very easy when people start training to polarize, to use that word again, it, and turn it into weight in the bar and nothing else matters. One rep max and nothing else matters. You know, the downfall of that is that I've got lots of clients and lots of followers and lots of people that have contacted me and they, you know, they did three by five, five by five for a year and they got to a shitty, you know, I benched 215 and I squatted 345 and I deadlifted 410. They're not that strong. They don't look like they lift. They didn't build that much muscle. They're not fucking big and rare like I thought they were. And they hurt their back and couldn't lift for three months because doing nothing but low reps neglects the multitude of other systems that accompany the body, cardiovascular, the energetic capacity of the muscles, the whole, you're leaving a whole bunch of muscular development on the table, obviously, uh, you know, the stress in the joints. So they hurt themselves and they realize like, shit, I guess that, you know, you know, go heavy or go home didn't really quite work. Yeah, it didn't. I have no idea if that answered the question, but hopefully something in there would <laughs> no, it, be helpful. It, it certainly does. Yeah. And, um, I've noticed that myself that I've been many weights. <laughs> I've been, uh, up to 90, 91 kilos and as low as 59. I don't know if you do pounds or kilos, Alex, but... I do, yeah. Okay, so... And yeah, we spoke to Juji Mufu, who reminds us a little bit of you, actually. <laughs> um, who And he, he was saying that... Uh, I mean, th this is a guy who is a massive bodybuilder. He's like 110 kilos lean. Um, yeah, he's, he's a freak athlete, that guy. He's great. He's an amazing athlete, yeah. But he, he says there's, there was an optimal point where his best tricking or his best acrobatics was at 80 kilos, 180 pounds. Of course, um, of course. <laughs> and the, there is kind of an optimal point of like where you have enough muscle for your jump height and your power and tumbling and things to be improved. And then much beyond that, you just get shin splints and you slow yourself down and you get in the way. Do you think there's a... Because the thing that I'm noticing from, from what you both said there was that this is the pursuit of strength in the context of something else. So Alex, you were saying like it would it, it more in the context of ballet or sort of general preparedness. And then Yusuf, mm -hmm. you're saying in the context of gymnastics or tricking, strength or weight becomes a problem at a certain point. Do you think yeah. that, I mean, I guess the, the vast majority of the gym population are probably just looking for use strength or muscle mass as a metric to keep score. And it's I mean, they are. Else. Yeah, I mean, they are. I mean, you have to keep that in mind. Like, you know, these things, there's context to all these things. You know, for, for, at the beginning, and I says in the email list, like I always talk about, like, you know, progressive overload, just get big and strong. Because for, for most people, that's, that's where they're starting out. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's a situation where, yeah, if you can get your pulling and your pressing and your squatting strength up, that's going to build the muscle you need. And then in the future, when you get to a point where you have enough, so to speak, of that, then you can, yeah, I guess I'd say you shift more to, you know, train for hypertrophy to maintain a lean body mass, since that has 8,000 billion health benefits. You know, mm -hmm. train for connect chain function, where you always have these movement skills. Uh, but, yeah, at the same time, though, you don't want to make it so overly simplistic that you end up trapping people, which is what the, it happens a lot with, you know, especially young guys and older guys. I mean, all ages of people where this, they've never really worked out before, they aren't lifted. And they get presented these systems, um, not singling one out, but they get presented systems, you know, like, you know, five reps, everything, you do three sets of five, five sets of five. And it's very dogmatic, and it seems to answer the questions you have as to, how come I've never been fit? Well, you never f fucking lifted heavy enough. Those stupid bodybuilding routines that you probably didn't, you didn't even do right to begin with, they were the wrong things, because those guys were all on drugs. Um, it's like, oh, that's why people are bigger than me. They're just on drugs. Everyone that's bigger than me is on drugs. 
you know, if I just do five reps, it will just answer all my problems and get me laid. I'll make a million dollars. And Very familiar. <laughs> I won't even have to talk to women. They'll just want to sleep with me. So I'm going to do, I'm going to do three sets of five. And they do that, and they doesn't do any of those things for them. And it's like, realize, I, I wrote an article about this with like three by five, five by five dog. And it's like, no, it didn't do any of those things for you because you had unrealistic expectations and you didn't actually learn anything. You learned how to do three fucking lifts. That's it. And guess what? Chicks don't care how much you squat. The only women that care how much you squat are women that are fit chicks themselves. And they probably don't want to sleep with you anyways because they want a guy that's bigger than you because you're not that big. And they're not even that big to be with. So you can't take them out to eat. They're bitchy because they have to meal prep everything. And their whole life revolves around the fucking gym. They have no real interest and they're barely even a functional fucking human being outside of that. So maybe all the things you thought were stupid. That's how that goes. That's how it goes. And like, okay, well, what comes next? Like, but what comes next is you want to use all the rep ranges, be able to do more than one variation of a pattern, start there. And then, you know, like my, my routines that I sell for people, they're like 20, 30 bucks. You know how fucking simple they are? You're going to do a barbell movement, a dumbbell movement, body weight movement, something with machines. You're going to do all, all the things. You're going to do sets of five, sets of eight, sets of 10, sets of 20. You're going to use all the rep ranges. Shockingly, by some, you know, godly power, everybody gets really good results from that. Wow. You know, I'm like, I, I used, I used all the rep ranges basically. That, that, that's there. That's like, that's this whole secret sauce of every program I, I have, you know, it's there. That's it. So that, that leads us into your unified theory of muscle and strength. Yeah. Is that, is that it in a nutshell? Uh, basically it is. I mean, unified theory is this, that's why I deemed it because Having been in the personal training industry and having seen the, the tautological, you know, es- esoteric bullshit that gets made of, of movements, you know, like I've, I've seen this now, you know, arise over the last some years where we have all these flow movements and you have animal flow and primal flow and, you know, various theories of, you know, movement, movement specialists, you're, you're special at moving, which I assume that makes you bad at moving, but whatever. Um, but, you know, like what makes a, a person well-functioning versus movement? Gravity goes straight down. So your skeleton has to be lined up with gravity. If you develop each joint and each, you know, if you go joint by joint and develop the muscle in a symmetrical way where the strength and length tension relationship between the muscles that surround that joint are proportional to each other, and you do that over the entire body, you are going to move well, and you will be, by some approximation, athletic. That's it. So how do you do that? Look at any muscle. What are the different ranges of motion that moves in? Your wrist goes this way. Your wrist goes this way. Your wrist can circumduct. So if I train those three functions, my wrist should function well. Yeah, basically. Well, you can also load your wrist. Okay, well, what, what about this? So we have to address the other muscles. Well, your forearm, okay. Your forearm twists. It also helps with curling. So it should be able to do those things. You just you keep using that approach for each joint and each muscle, and then you realize, all right, if I want to have healthy hips – I should be able to do multi-directional lunges. I should be able to deadlift with both legs upon one leg. I should be able to squat, you know, low. Maybe not with a lot of weight, but I should be able to squat fully to depth. And then you can do the same thing for back, same thing for chest, same thing for shoulders. You do that across the entire body. I mean, it, be, it comes down to almost this very much uh, classical bodybuilding training when those guys, you know, classical bodybuilders, or even current ones, you know, uh, Steve Reeves, Ronnie Coleman, Jay Cutler, uh, you know, Franco, uh, Zane, you know, uh, hell, you can go even earlier than that. But uh, you know, what do they always talk about? Well, you need to train all the angles. 
you know, you, you need to work the angles. So there's, there's this thing, like, you need to work the angles. What are they really discussing? Because if you look at, especially like the classical bodybuilders, you know, let's say 70s, you know, before, they had a very athletic looking physiques. They did. They, yeah. You know, this is before the past monster. They were very athletic looking. And a lot of them were phenomenal athletes. They're phenomenal athletes. Um, you know, you can read about their athletic ex- exploits where, you know, for some of them, they were strongmen, they were acrobats, they could do gymnastics, they, they were athletic guys. What did they key in on? They realized that if you want to have a functional skeleton, your muscles and joints need to be able to move in all the primary and secondary directions they can move in. That's it. You know, that, that, you know, in a nutshell, like that's it. So, you know, something like your shoulder, you can go up, you can go forward, you can go side, you can kind of make a circle. Are you able to do those things? Yes or no? It, it becomes a very easy way to assess anybody because you can just go, starting at the neck, you can just go through, run through the joint functions. The other thing being the, the muscle someone has on them will tell you what their joints will do. Yeah, that's the other factor of it. You can assess someone's movement just by looking at them. Look at look at what muscle they have and don't have. That's very clear to anybody that has an eye for movement and is well-versed in this stuff. You know, so unified theory of movement, it's just basically muscle joint functionality. You, you develop that comprehensively. I call it like kind of the Magellan principle. Everything makes a circle, all goes through six degrees. You develop a muscle along its whole axis of movement, develop a joint along its whole axis of movement, you will move well. Which is a criticism, I suppose, of three, the three by five style programs that are very, you know, siloed down into a few exercises that everybody has to do. There's no ind- individual programming at all. And you end up with an injury, especially when yeah. you well, there's no there's no individuation and then yeah, at the same time the people do have different skeletons you know like i myself uh my like my lower back i have almost no lordotic curve you know my, my spine you know and my uh yeah, my sacrum it goes straight down i don't have an arch to it at all it's it's very minor so you know heavy squatting for myself uh it, it thrashed my low back and you know i all i end up i end up with a, a lot of disc issues and a lot of hip issues from it you know i, I actually had some cartilage damage to my left hip that took a while to recover from um, so, you know, I had to accept at a certain point that, you know what, uh, th- I'm not going to be good at heavy squatting. I can take it to a, a point, but it's not going to work so well. The same thing, you know, then at the same time, I also realized I'm pretty explosive. I can jump really high. Was I jumping higher when I was squatting heavier? No, I wasn't. Yeah. I've had female clients where they got very long femurs and they got very short torsos. Uh, putting the barbell on their back doesn't work for them. You know, in the same way you can have guys that have really long arms uh, let's say they have, you know, let's say you know, a guy that has really long arms, he's kind of, kind of got narrow shoulders. Bench pressing is probably not going to build his chest that well. So you have to take into account people's anthropometrics when you assign the movement. You, ha- you have to. If, if you don't do that, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. Uh, could it be that a barbell lift works well for somebody based upon their anthropometric structure? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why there are those guys with alligator arms that can bench press and they have huge chests and they don't know any different because. They bench 275 the first time in their gym, and fuck it, work. Why would they question it? We, we anything that works, anything that works for us on the, on the first time we do it, we will never question it. We don't. Um, you know, for those that struggle with it, you have to address. You know, is this exercise the most you know efficacious relative to your particular structure? Yeah, you know, and relative to the programming I do, that's why I've had very superlative, superlative results with people over the years. I, I follow my theory, so to speak. I put into practice. And I make exercises selections based upon the individual in question. Yeah, that's it. So, you know, for you can have a client, you can have a person where the back squat will work the best for building glutes. You can have a person where the hip thrust will work the best for building glutes. You can have a person where a front squat is going to be the most effective for developing you know, their overall legs. You have someone where 
you know what, maybe we dispense with the squats because they have spinal issues and I don't want to actually load the spine for pressure that way. So we're just going to lunge and do single leg work. Everything can work given the proper context of the individual. If you try to, you know, generalize that, you can generalize it into patterns. Everyone should be able to squat. Everyone should be able to deadlift in some capacity, you know, and especially with body weight. I think body weight's foundational. But the implements, Im- implements, you know, all of them equally work. They're all equal to each other. Yeah, even machine. Same thing with machines. You know, the hatred some people have for machines. Uh, I got I, I, that. I don't get it at all. Yeah, you know, like you, you, it, it, it's it's this very weird thing where we can talk about you know machines are, uh, you know they're you know they're unnatural and they put you into these fixed ranges of motion. You know, so on and so forth. Um, you know, and that that's not good to do. But then we pick up these perfectly machine precision, perfectly balanced, manufactured lifting implements and that's more natural somehow like that's yeah. more natural to lift yeah and i h- how there, there's nothing <laughs> natural about a dumbbell you have a you have a set of a what like you got like 20 30 weights in front of you they're like these perfectly calibrated handheld weights like this is this is more natural to use these or same thing with kettlebells like you know this trains your body in the more you know uh, whatever the fuck you know primal paleo you know caveman style you know natural style of training you know this this, this is the way it's supposed to be like it's a fucking weight with a handle on it. I'm like, uh, okay, like you carry groceries. I've never fucking kettlebell snatched my grocery bag. Fucking ever. <laughs> the only thing I've ever fucking kettlebell snatched is a fucking kettlebell. You know, like, and, like that movement into itself. I'm like, what is that good for? I have no idea. But it's cool that you can do it. It's a it's a good point. Like, you you know, you have to go and move a bit of furniture and you're like, bloody hell, this is hard. And you think, well, actually, it's because all the training I've done is done on a bar that is perfectly calibrated and and made with knurling to fit my fit my hand and you know the the diameter of the bar is the perfect width for and actually if you were to deviate and use a bar that's slightly thicker than normal or whatever max just goes down by 30 40%. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Like these things have been manufactured for convenience to train with. So to say that they're yeah, functional which, which is true. Yeah, I mean, it's great for safety. I mean, it's still functional being muscular. It's not as if the strength you build in the gym is not functional strength. Like, uh, that's a, I've always found that fascinating where it's like, a, especially with a, you know, people that don't like hypertrophy or, you know, machine bodybuilding work where it's like, well, it's not functional muscle. I'm like, how? How do you add muscle tissue that doesn't contract? It doesn't make any sense. Now, you, obviously, like you just said, like, you can go to move furniture and realize, you know what, I'm not as strong as I thought I was or so adept. And, you know, it's always kind of like the blue collar, like, a, you know, like the farmer boy criticism. You know, and that's kind of true. Like, yeah, you know, I, I remember I was in Puerto Vallarta once in Mexico, and I saw this gentleman on the beach who had one of the most muscular backs I've ever seen. This guy was just, just knotted top to bottom. You know what he did all day? He pulled in boats from the water. And <laughs> he did this probably 10, 12 hours a day. Fucking lats, traps, rhomboids. I'm like, if you were to take a guy to a gym, he might probably lift the same weight that everybody else lifted. Maybe he'd row the 100-pound dumbbell. And he'd be like, "What the fuck? What is this?" You know, he, like, you know, that's you know, and not to, you know, uh, idolize that that we should all be pulling boats in, but it just gives you some of the practicality that muscles for movement. So you, you should be good at moving with the muscle that you have. And I suppose that guy is going to be training effectively with multiple rep ranges, multiple weights, um, probably, and <laughs> unilateral stuff. And all, so, all the time, yeah. he, he probably he probably has big boats and small boats, and you know maybe the boats are, are loaded, some are empty. You know, maybe some of them he has to you know pull all the way, and maybe some of them he has to move position. Like you have to you have to be you have to be uh, you know multi talented or you know uh, multi variability. And if he only did three sets of five, it would take him ages to get a, a boat in as well. I, he probably. 
Well, I mean, that, that's the irony of this powerlifting. I know I was not critiquing powerlifters. I mean, I, I have so much respect for those guys, but just I, I met, I knew so many of them, and they, they weren't good at actual things. They were good at lifting the bar, but like if you were to ask them, like, let's go, you know, walk for thirty minutes, they'd get winded. <clears throat> you know, like. <laughs> I think especially some guys. Here's the thing: there has been a trend now in powerlifting. I will say where there's more lifters today. They're coming up that they are more. They're gonna people will hate this word, but like they're more balanced. They're actually they take care of their joint health. They try to be more athletic. They do more GPP. Um, You know, they're not just they're not like the big fat slow lifter. You know, with both with two torn pecs. But yeah, at the same time, like you know, with that, for a lot of the guys to get into it, they they fall into that. You know, you know, they they fall into that gulf. Um, where they just like, like I said before, I think that's the be all end all, and they end up they end up being less athletic for it. I think especially elite FTS Westside Barbell is probably the like the most extreme it could possibly get. So you've been around some of the very like tail end of the population. Yeah, no, I I've, I have been on like the I, I have I have known and been friends with the guys at the very end of the tail. I mean, they are an extreme category, you know. And I guess the other factor too, they have to consider you know on a meta level. Do you want to? Who do you want to learn from? You know, can you learn from extreme outliers? Probably, they're probably going to have some good insights. You know, so certainly if they've trained a lot of people. At the same time, you also have a sense of paradigm blindness where you are an extreme outlier. Your experiences and your way of being are not representative of the vast majority of people that train. So you you have to take that context into account with where you're getting information from. Somebody that trained their whole life to squat a thousand pounds and has done nothing else and divorced their wife and doesn't see their kids, but they want to squat a thousand pounds. I'm sure that guy does know a lot about how to squat a thousand pounds. I don't know if I would take any advice from him or anything else. Again, context. He may also only be able to squat a thousand pounds because of proportions, genetics. The well, things you know, that... if, if he's, if he's six, four and his, his wrist is the, you know, the, the diameter of your kneecap, um, He's, there's probably a reason why he's that strong yeah. beyond just his program that he did. It's maybe a so bit different. Alex, it's been fantastic talking to you. And uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. Guys. I don't want to take much more of your time. Do you want to just tell us a bit more about how people can find out more about you? And I think you've got a book coming out as well. If you want to quickly mention that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I have, I have a book coming out next week. It's just a short little pithy book, Maxims and Axioms. Um, the untaught truths of adulthood. Uh, it was uh, I actually I live tweeted the whole book on Twitter. I saw um, excerpts of it and it looks good. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, very, I, I've been reading. Um, well, a variety of people. It's kind of like this, like tale of inspired, where you know, I, I got into this idea of this, you know, writing sound sort of as like little like short truths, just things you notice, recognize patterns, you know, axioms, like I said. Um, and then I just I compiled all of it and it came out to like you know I think it was over. Oh, like three or four hundred, you know, over the past year or so that I wrote down. Um, and then I just I tweet all of them out at once. Uh, you know, and the, the book comes out next week. It's just you know one of those like sort of off the shelf, read a few pages books, and yeah, it has some like I said some effective truths in there. Uh, in, in terms of accessibility, the easiest place to find me uh, email list. So my full name Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez. If you type that in, go to my website. You can sign up for the email list. I email every day. Uh, every single day, sometimes twice a day. The email list is a really broad mix of fitness, health, mentality, mindset, masculinity, marketing, how to write, you know, how to find purpose. So I, yeah, there's a lot of categories. There, there's, there's a, it doesn't have any 
straightforward category too. It all kind of, all kind of, it falls under the umbrella of what I just deem, you know, how to be a healthy person. You have to develop all these different parts of yourself. Uh, but the email list is the easy place to get in touch with me directly. You can always email me back. I'll reply. I'm also on Twitter, obviously, uh, AJA underscore Cortez. I have a very active Twitter account. So I have, I have daily AMAs on Twitter. I have daily Periscope Ask Me Things on Twitter. Um, I do live streams a lot. So that, you know, that's another play. Uh, that's probably the, the best place of accessibility since I'll probably answer you within a minute if you hit me up there. Uh, you know, but those two places, the Twitter and the email list. Oh, then also I do have a podcast that is by what, by monthly come out usually about two episodes a month. Um, the art of health. And again, the easiest place to find that is just usually Twitter since I'll tweet out the podcast whenever I make them. Great. We'll put links to all of that in the, in the show awesome. notes. Alex. It's been fantastic. Thanks very much for coming on. Good talk. Done.